Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Dr. Susan Shirk, founding chair of the 21st Century China Center at the University of California, San Diego, and author of Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise, which examines the evolution of China's domestic and foreign policy over the last 15 years. Hello and welcome to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mike Green, the Chief Executive Officer at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney and a non-resident Senior Advisor and Kissinger Chair here at CSIS. We're really delighted today to welcome Susan Shirk onto the podcast. Susan is the founding chair of the 21st Century China Center at the University of California, San Diego, where she also spent her career as a political scientist working on China. Susan has also served at the highest levels of government in the Clinton administration, where she was a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of East Asia and Pacific Affairs. And just last year, she published a magnificent book, perfectly timed for our discussion today, entitled Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise, which is, I think, one of the best examinations of the Xi Jinping administration and how China's grand strategy and foreign policy shifted as a result of domestic political changes. We're delighted to have Susan on the podcast today. Susan, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much, Jude. It's great to be here with you and Mike. So Susan, as always, we start with a biographical question. You've worn many different hats, academic, policymaker, and most recently, program builder. I wonder if you can give listeners a a high-level overview of how you got into a career focusing on China and who or what were some of the major influences that shaped your career trajectory. When I was a high school student, I was runner-up for the AFS exchange student. I didn't get it. So my parents took pity on me and uh, sent me to Japan on the experiment in international living, where I lived with the shopkeeper's family in Nagano City, right by Senkoji Temple. And I had you know, an amazing experience because at that time, back in the dark ages, nobody learned about Asia in high school history or social studies. So, you know, I was really fascinated by Japan. So when I started college at Mount Holyoke, I started taking courses on Asia in political science and history and became interested in China. And then I had a very rare opportunity. There was a special program uh, for people from small colleges uh, where they didn't teach critical languages uh, like Chinese and Japanese and Russian to go to Princeton for their junior year. So I went to Princeton from a woman's college at Mount Holyoke to Princeton for my junior year, which I call my junior year as abroad, and uh, had a fascinating time. And But let's remember, it was a time that despite my fascination with China, no Americans could go to China. So I think back and think, wow, that was a rather odd choice. But I kept studying China. And then as a 
PhD student at MIT, I went to Hong Kong to do the research for my dissertation, which is the way you studied China at that time. You studied it from afar. And actually, I've thought recently that we might be headed back toward that kind of situation. I hope that's not the case. But so from Hong Kong then, and here it is just complete good luck that I was able to uh, be part of the first student group right after the ping pong team to visit China. And that was an amazing experience. So for a month, we traveled around China. Uh, we went to Dajai, the agricultural brigade that was the model of self-reliance. And of course, little did we know how much it was being subsidized by Beijing. But Chen Yunghui, the charismatic leader of Dajai, was there with us for three days. We met Zhou Enlai in Beijing, uh, had a four-hour meeting with Zhou Enlai, and it was the moment, the very moment, when Henry Kissinger had come to Beijing to arrange the Nixon visit. So uh, Zhou Enlai said, bring your tape recorders so that I can spread the word of the Chinese view of why we were inviting Richard Nixon to visit China. So there, picture it in the Great Hall of the People, Zhou Enlai with two of the four gang of four sitting around him, watching to make sure that he didn't slip and say anything politically untoward, uh, Yao Wenyuan and Zhang Chunqiao. And then, uh, because his interpreter, Nancy Tang, had spent the afternoon with me and must have gone back and talked to Joe and Lai about me, uh, when he was asked the question, why did you invite Richard Nixon to visit China? He said, well, if the Chinese people want to be friends with the American people, then the governments, two governments have to talk to each other and for the two governments to talk to each other, we have to invite the president. And then he said, I wish Susan Shirk were president of the United States, but she's not, so we're inviting Richard Nixon. So for years afterwards, uh, since that became a study document for the party in China, people knew who I was from this transcript. It was really wild. So I've had such tremendous luck. And then, of course, being at UC San Diego uh, for many years, now, you know, more than 45 years, a uh, wonderful university that uh, was a young research university on the move, and then to have the chance to serve in government in the Clinton administration. And so... I was, and I have, as you note, noted, developed new programs at the university for a long time, including this wonderful 21st Century China Center that we've built at UC San Diego. And of course, the chance to serve in government was, you know, 
fantastic, even though I was a little worried about having a boss because, you know, professors don't have any bosses. But I was very fortunate. My boss was Madeleine Albright. She had been an academic, too. And uh, she was uh, extremely supportive and took a lot of my advice quite seriously. I'll give you one example. You know, I would go in there and I would advise we should really push China on this issue, but not that issue, because in my estimation, one issue was something that was really in China's own interest. And it eventually, like um, actually environmental policy and climate change, and eventually they were going to come around to being uh, positive about it. But then there were issues, especially related to human rights, that I was very pessimistic we'd make much progress on. So I would say, you know, it's really a matter of domestic politics. And then one of uh, Secretary Albright's advisors say, oh, come on, Susan, you know, there are no domestic politics in China. And Secretary Albright would give him this withering look because having herself studied communist regimes in Eastern Europe and Russia, she knew that although the domestic politics might not be as transparent to us, they were certainly going on beneath the surface. That's fascinating, Susan. I would also recommend that listeners Google Joe Anlai and Susan Shirk, and you will see an absolutely fantastic photo of that meeting Susan, Susan just mentioned. Susan, there's really a lot of your scholarship we could focus on for this conversation. You have, over the period of the Xi Jinping administration, been a very trenchant critic of many of the actions she and his administration have taken. And much of this observation culminated in the book we mentioned in the intro called Overreach, which if you just read the title, you might think is yet another in the long list of titles that is simply a sort of everything is Xi Jinping's fault. And of course, there's a lot of that in there. But the book is actually a much deeper, more probing study of the pre-Xi Jinping transformations, developments and personalities who began shifting China in the direction that culminates with this overreach. So you you begin before she even comes to power, looking at the, the 2000s. So I wonder if you can first give us a high-level summary of what was occurring in this pre-Xi Jinping period that put us on today's current trajectory. Well, this was the Hu Jintao era. And who was a relatively weak leader who managed a collective leadership. And of course, this form of collective leadership, the standing committee of the Politburo, um, was an arrangement that Deng Xiaoping had promoted after he took over when Mao died, because Deng saw that what he described as the over-concentration of authority in the hands of a dictatorial leader could lead to arbitrary decision-making. And of course, the tragic 
consequences of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. So Deng tried to institutionalize governance by the Chinese Communist Party through this collective leadership. And one of the most important parts of it was the uh, regular turnover of leadership at the top every two five-year terms, every 10 years. So that was really quite an accomplishment for a communist regime had never been done before. But the collective leadership, even though in my previous work, I had a vision of collective leadership as being uh, leading to maybe inertia, stasis, um, not doing enough because of these mutual vetoes. The members of the standing committee would check one another. But in what I saw was that under Hu Jintao, it actually operated in a very different way. Instead, there was a kind of log rolling in which each of the oligarchs, and at the time they had nine of them, and including some very powerful leaders, such as Zhou Yongkang, who was the head of what I call the control coalition of the internal security forces. And then, of course, a lot of economic uh, agencies that these bureaucratic interest groups would try to uh, hype the domestic threats and the international threats in order to feather their own nest, to get more resources, bigger budgets for their own agencies. And we saw this begin actually before the Olympics uh, in terms of tightening up social control, uh, grid management, and also control over the media and then never loosening up ever afterwards. Uh, and we also saw it in things like the South China Sea, where some of these bureaucratic interest groups uh, started trying to enforce their claims over territory. And at the time uh, when I saw this change in policy in the South China Sea, I found it puzzling because it was not the focal point of popular nationalism. Japan was, Taiwan was, but the South China Sea wasn't until these, the oligarchs and the bureaucratic interest groups started bringing the TV cameras and the media along and mobilized public support behind the uh, Weitran the enforcement of uh, their territorial claims. So you got a kind of log rolling dynamic. And this is uh, inspired by the study that Jack Snyder did of pre-war Germany and Japan. But what I found is it applies to domestic overreach as well as foreign policy overreach. And maybe I just should add that overreach, the meaning of overreach, is to take things too far, to do them in an exaggerated manner 
in a way that snaps back to harm yourself. So overreach doesn't just mean being aggressive. It means being aggressive, belligerent in a way that has sparked a backlash um, and led to domestically led to a lot of economic problems as well as a result of excessive focus on control. Yeah, certainly one of the thoughts I had in reading the book is just how profoundly uh, prone China's system is to these sorts of pathologies. There's almost a damned if you do, damned if you don't dynamic wherein you over-centralize the political system like under Mao Zedong or, or more recently Xi Jinping. You can see how the system can be steered off a cliff. Yet as you describe in your book, under the Hu Jintao period, you had a, a system or a leadership that was too decentralized and, and too weak, which leads to a different set of pathologies. And so it feels like one of the political puzzles over the past hundred years, which encompasses the, the Communist Party, is that really the normalcy of the system is in this sort of decentralized, centralized pendulum. And it's really just this brief period in the Deng era, maybe the Jiang Zemin era, where, where it seemed like the elements of the system were just perfectly aligned to get some good governance outcomes. But, but I think it is a general phenomenon that it seems to be that the system sort of bobs back and forth between these various pathologies. Well, that's true. But at the time that we were watching collective leadership, nobody believed that it was ever going to turn back to centralized rule because um, it appeared that, especially with the market reforms in the economy, the growth of the middle class, people traveling abroad, middle, you know, becoming more cosmopolitan, better educated, that the Chinese political system was evolving to be more responsive, more institutionalized. And which is, of course, what had happened in the Soviet Union. But Xi Jinping saw that. And the lesson he drew was that uh, that was not the direction he wanted to go in. And he, I mean, both Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping were very interested in why the Soviet Union collapsed. But Hu Jintao believed that if he made the system more responsive to society, it could survive and flourish and the economy would grow. But Xi Jinping believed that if you devolved power, if you lost some power, and if the members of the party and the military became focused on their own careers rather than on their ideological loyalty, that's what would bring about the downfall of the Chinese Communist Party, just as he believed it had brought the downfall of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. I'm going to turn over to Mike in a second, Susan, but I wanted to ask you one last question, which is your assessment of Xi Jinping's style of leadership and risk calculus. If we were to rewind back to the period just following the 20th Party Congress last fall, Xi Jinping has now successfully elevated 
key loyalists into almost all the important positions, Central Committee, Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee. And that, I think, put us in a position to think that Xi Jinping was confident and assured. And one of the interesting policy dynamics at the time is we still had this very draconian set of COVID restrictions, which had kept the country in near lockdown for, for years. Within, I think, a, a matter of weeks, we saw all of that unravel in a way that I don't remember anyone predicting. And certainly the standard answer from China analysts at the time was COVID zero is not going anywhere anytime soon. Xi Jinping's policy, it's his, his signature is on it. He's been reticent to make any significant transformations or adjustments to it. If this ends, it will end in a very gradual way without the Xi administration admitting defeat. And yet, suddenly out of nowhere, we see protests emerge uh, after a, a fire in Xinjiang that then leads not to a crackdown as I think many, myself including, thought more likely, but in fact, the immediate removal of all these restrictions. So I wanted to ask you, does that set of actions by Xi in response to COVID protests complicate your picture of Xi Jinping as a leader and his governance style? Or do you see some internally consistent logic that explains why Xi Jinping reacted that way? Well, yes, I, I think the extreme zero COVID approach uh, of investing so much resources in testing, enforced quarantining, even just of people who had contacts with people who had tested positive. I mean, when you look at the data, of it, it's shocking how few people actually even had symptoms who were put into these collective uh, quarantine facilities. The lockdowns, I think this is uh, a kind of classic example of overreach because there were plenty of experts in China who were advising going in another direction, but nobody could even mention really how to uh, plan for the transition because she had made zero COVID a totem, a symbol of his power. And he, in fact, had the standing committee kind of declare loyalty, you know, Biao Tai to zero COVID to show how loyal they were to him and to the party. So, and you know, there were a lot of bolts from the blue in the Xi Jinping era in which there's kind of a sudden shift in policy because, and the treatment of the private sector is uh, another important example, especially in 2021, where, you know, right before Ed Financial is about to list, it gets yanked. And, uh, a lot of the platform internet economies are attacked. And so I think this is all a reflection of the nature of the system under this personalistic leadership. Xi Jinping's own judgment is not particularly good. And yet 
nobody dares question it uh, because beginning back in 2013, he launched this anti-corruption campaign, which is essentially a purge. Um, and the purge continues from then to today. Uh, it's become what Brzezinski called the permanent purge. So the same people who once were so trusted that they were the inquisitors in the first round are now the targets in the third and fourth rounds. So this has put so much pressure on subordinate officials that they feel that they have to leap on the bandwagon behind Xi Jinping's policies, um, even when they don't believe they're very uh, sensible. But to show they're, they're in competition with one another, so they have to jump out in front to get noticed and to protect themselves from being purged. And then nobody dares uh, provide information up the ladder to Xi to tell him what are the costs of the policies he has pursued. So the, the whole system it operates in this way, and I think that helps us understand so many features of foreign policy, wolf warrior diplomacy, economic coercion, the things that have made China seem more threatening to us, I think are the result of the way this system functions. And, and internally, uh, the extreme uh, repression in Xinjiang, the sudden takeover of Hong Kong, when Hong Kong officials themselves weren't even clued in it happened so suddenly. So, and that's very worrisome. I mean, I think that's what makes all of us really concerned that we can no longer count on the pragmatism, the strategic prudence of the Chinese leadership. Susan, the book is both uh, authoritative and really readable. And I think for my money offers the best explanation of how we got here. On one hand, you have people arguing it was all structure, the Thucydides trap, you know, the long, you know, 100,000 year time horizon of the Chinese people and all that stuff. It's all structure. And then you have others saying it's all agency. It was Xi Jinping. He ruined a great party. And I think you you add a nuance and a new um, explanation that really is troublesome, worrying, worrying but, but clear. Um, I did note that you put the most important turning point to 2006. But of course, before Xi Jinping. And I would just add for the record, 2006 is just after I left the White House. So it seems to me you've established well, you clear, clear correlation. Scholars can debate the causality. and and uh, But to me, the correlation is clear, although my, my wife doesn't buy that particular hypothesis. <laughs> Jumping to the present and the future. So you have uh, a final chapter I'll come back to with recommendations for both Beijing and Washington. Um, but since you wrote the book, President Biden has done a truncated but significant trip to Japan and the, and the region um, with the G7, the Quad, and other meetings. You talk in the book about the consequences of overreach, particularly the really dramatic turn against China in public opinion in much of the world and, and shifting policies. Looking at the G7 trip, 
that President Biden took? Did did he get it about right in terms of mobilizing the world? Or was it, in your view, either not enough or too much? I have been somewhat critical of Trump administration and Biden administration policies, as well as Congress, for over what I say is overreacting to China's overreach and undertaking pretty radical policies, including right now we're talking about cutting off private investments in some areas. We already have cut off private investments in some military uh, connected sectors in China. So things that typically we only do in the middle of a war, um, we have been doing toward China. And I have felt that many of these things, that actions that we've taken in reaction to the perceived China threat would actually harm the United States' own competitiveness and our open society and economy. So, and that the Biden administration wasn't engaging with China enough through diplomacy. It's like they'd given up. They'd concluded that China was our enemy, an existential threat. And so therefore, we're just kind of whacking them, punishing them. Uh, And so then the Chinese, of course, were concluding that we were engaged in containment of China and it wouldn't matter what they did, they would still get punished. And I didn't think there was enough nuance and uh, effort to use diplomacy to test whether or not Xi Jinping might still be sensitive to costs and benefits and might be willing to moderate his policies. We just hadn't had enough diplomacy to over the last six or seven years. So in this case, I thought the meetings in Hiroshima really did get it just about right. Um, There was what looked to be a real consensus not a um, faux consensus, but a real consensus between the other G7 members and the United States about combining a kind of strong uh, criticism of China's overreach, but also opening the possibility that we might still be able to restore a constructive relationship with China. And, you know, in the criticism of China, there are a lot of messages like that designed to be somewhat reassuring that we are not trying to contain China and that a China that is an active leader in the world but acts responsibly would be a very positive thing. So some of those kinds of messages that we used to send to China in previous administrations um, were being sent. And I think this really shows the value of working with allies and friends because 
to a certain extent, they, uh, the Europeans, the Japanese, they prevent us from becoming our own worst enemy. You know, they prevent us from going too far and becoming too hostile to China because, of course, they are more, they're very concerned about commercial opportunities, et cetera. And they have different interests. They don't have the same security interests that the United States does. And then the president's press conference, the way he um, interpreted the outcomes of the meetings, I thought was really very artfully done and struck just the right combination of strength to balance against a more threatening China with the reassurance. I mean, he he said, for example, that he didn't buy the argument that this pessimism about whether or not we could get along with China, he didn't believe it was hopeless. And also the way he talked about Taiwan against, you know, noting that our policy continued to be one of opposing unilateral action by either side, Taiwan as well as the mainland, but also saying very clearly that if the mainland did unilaterally uh, use force against Taiwan, there would be a response. So, you know, I and the way we talked, uh, he talked about the South China Sea. Anyway, I thought it really struck just the right balance of the right tone. So I give the Biden administration a lot of policy for that, including our friend Kurt Campbell. But I also give Japan and the Japanese prime minister Kushida, a lot of a lot of credit for pulling it all together the way he did. Yeah, you, you should have stuck with Japan studies. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, the uh, success I do think has a lot to do with Japan hosting because more than any of the rest of the countries involved, Japan has been at the forefront of figuring out how you compete without catastrophe. You know, they've been struggling with this earlier and longer than any of us. Mm-hmm. So you you make a strong and I think a compelling case that. Diplomacy has got to be a core part of the approach in the book. And as you said, the Biden administration is warming to that. I'm not sure Beijing is. And I wanted to ask you what success looks like. I mean, the book, you argued Xi himself is not going to change. You've described this cauldron of internal politics in China and the sort of authoritarian control groups growing dominance. I mean, what does success look like if diplomacy is really given a chance? Are we just managing competition? I don't. I assume you don't think we're going to go back to the happier days of 2005. Probably not. But, you know, so much of what has happened from the time I started studying China and the immediate post-Mao period to what we see today is really, we couldn't have predicted that. And so I don't really think we can predict the future either. And one thing that I have a hunch about, although there's no way for me to be confident in this judgment, 
is that many of the things that Xi Jinping is doing, his uh, international and domestic overreach, are not broadly supported by the members of the elite, the political elite, the intellectual elite, the professional elite. And, you know, so that's an important audience for U.S. policy, too, in the long game. And I'm not, I'm not predicting a coup or anything like that, but, you know, the complete lack of power sharing at the top, you know, no other factions represented at all, you know, it's not a stable situation. And I think that's the biggest risk to Xi Jinping, more than some bottom-up upheaval. But on the other hand, there are a lot of things that are really very worrisome in the economy, including this unemployment of college graduates. I mean, if you look around the world, that almost always leads to instability. You know, unemployed college graduates in India or Pakistan or the Middle East, these are the people who take to the streets. They're very frustrated. So, you know, I don't know what exactly what will happen. But and I don't even know that diplomacy would induce Xi Jinping to moderate his policies. I just have felt that we need to test it more to get better information. Well, diplomacy is, frankly, pretty cost free with allies. In fact, it has benefits with China done correctly. It doesn't show weakness. The big cost to diplomacy is domestic politics. And I think it's possible to walk and chew gum at the same time. You can you can increase deterrence. You can strengthen alliances, AUKUS, the Quad. You can pull together the world on the G7. I would argue you can keep pushing hard on human rights and democracy and still do, do diplomacy. There's a track for that. Um, that's a pretty basic grand strategy. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. And I think we were late to get going with the diplomacy. And um, the fact that the Chinese leadership is now playing hard to get in, uh, we're trying to set up a presidential phone call and we're publicly showing that we're trying to do that. And the Chinese side is blowing us off, which is really infuriating, I have to say. I feel... That's really outrageous. And I think, but I must say that it did occur to me that in a way it's a little bit modeling on the first year of the Biden administration when we concentrated on shaping the environment around China and didn't make a much of an effort to talk to them. China now is making nice to all of our allies trying to put a wedge in between them and us, and they don't want to talk to us. It's a historical fact that every administration's first year of China policy is not the China policy that they pursue the last three or seven years. So there's learning going, and I think the the attempt at diplomacy has worked with allies. You know, you look at speeches by Australian Japanese governments, and I think it it spelled the success or 
a lot of success in uh, Hiroshima. Let me ask one more and then I'll let Jude take it home. The one area where I found myself in a little bit of disagreement or maybe looking for clarity was about the, the technology decoupling or what now people are called de- calling de-risking. Yes, a complete ban on investment in China would be extreme. I agree with you with that. But I think a lot of what you see the administration doing, or for that matter, Japan or the Dutch with the high-end semiconductor fabrication export controls, strikes me as pretty prudent given what we know about the predatory technology policies uh, that you describe in the book, including you know intellectual property rights and forced IPR transfer within China, but also the Thousand Talents campaign. So could you say a bit more about your thinking on that? Because I don't, yes, I, yes, we lose a lot. In innovation, we lose a lot in the the efficiencies of a of a, 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 an internet of things. But from a just national interest perspective, I don't know how we do anything other than restrict to some significant extent access to technology. Well, I support the restrictions on the production of advanced semiconductors because it is a kind of linchpin of so many other technologies. So that's one area that I would agree. But I see that we're starting right from 2019 and the entity list and going after Huawei. There were many other ways of protecting national security, a computer uh, network security than embargoing American technology into Huawei. And uh, we at 21st Century China Center did a report that if people are interested, I recommend that they go and read on our website, led by Peter Cowie, who's a terrific expert on tech trade and regulation, that there were other ways we could have done this that would be more focused. But we set out basically to destroy Huawei, which we have been in the process of doing. And, you know, that was taken as an extremely hostile act in China because people saw that it was costly to ourselves. And... Therefore, it was a signal that we really were willing to pay a high price to punish China and to weaken China. And I think that our technology restrictions are have gone way too far. And they keep going further and further to biotech, medicine, visa policies that are limiting um, the ability of students from certain universities to study in the United States. I mean, you can see the impact on scientific collaboration already. Uh, And it's been the case that some of the most important scientific collaboration in the top journals, the top work, has included co-authors from China and the United States. And we've been doing some research at UC San Diego, 21st Century China Center on that. You can see the damage that we're doing. And think about it. You know, the whole world loses out, not just America, 
when scientific progress is impeded in this way. So I think, you know, we're not in a war with China. We're in a strategic competition with China. And what I worry about is that we are acting more and more like China in politicizing our access to higher education, politicizing our market economy. I mean, we should be having Chinese automakers locating in the United States, building electric cars here. We are so far behind in electric cars because we won't let uh, Chinese batteries go into our electric cars. So we are harming ourselves in a multitude of ways, I believe, by overreacting. Susan, to bring our discussion to a close, I, I wanted to shift the lens a bit. You and I were in a briefing yesterday where we were talking about some of the dynamics of the Xi Jinping administration and what China has to do to fix this overreach problem, which you describe in the book. As a thought experiment, why don't you imagine you're invited by the Politburo to brief the regular Politburo study session, which is where they bring a outside expert from a Chinese think tank or university in to brief Xi Jinping and the leadership about a, a topic. This could be you know, industrial policy. This could be human capital. But let's imagine unprecedented they invite a, a foreign academic in and Xi Jinping says to you, Susan, you know the American system well. We're worried about the trajectory of bilateral relationships. What are steps or a step that I, Xi Jinping, could take that you think, A, would stabilize the relationship in the short term, and B, what is a step I could take that could stabilize the relationship over the long term? What would you say if Xi Jinping asked you that question? I think I would advise him to restore dialogue with Taiwan because Xi Jinping's decision not to talk to Tsai Ing-wen, who is really a very reasonable political leader and would have been a very good interlocutor, I think was a terrible mistake. And especially, of course, this backlash in Taiwan against any type of um, uh, reunification has been strengthened by what's happened in Hong Kong as well. But I doubt that anything's going to change in Hong Kong. But something can change in terms of cross-strait dialogue. And so when, if and when a DPP president is elected in January of next year, I think, I hope that maybe Xi Jinping might listen to Wang Yi you know, Wang Yi, the top foreign policy advisor, had been head of the Taiwan Affairs Office and the architect of Hu Jintao's policy of rapprochement across the strait, winning the hearts and minds of the people of Taiwan through economic integration. So I'd say that would be, that's one that I think is doable. I actually think that's doable. I also think this economic coercion issue has really become serious and is really uh, reinforcing uh, the backlash against China. And 
this is almost always about some domestic issue. And, you know, it's time. This is not what great powers do. You know, great powers act like big boys and girls, and they recognize that people in different countries have different points of view, and they long they learn to get along. And by disrupting uh, trade with these countries, punishing them through economic coercion, I think they've really put themselves in a bad position. I think this also could be modified, could be moderated. And there are a bunch of others. I mean, some things are not doable, but I think those things are doable. Yeah, certainly good good, good points, Susan, and also good advice. It will be telling to see what Beijing's response is after presidential elections in Taiwan next year. I think this is going to be a, a pretty clear litmus test for how reasonable the Xi administration is going to be. Many of us, I are pessimistic about that. Uh, but as you say, the ball is in their court to decide if they want to be a productive player in cross-strait relations or, or if they want to be obdurate uh, and continue to be the primary irritant uh, across the straits. So, you know, Susan, we could go on for uh, another six or seven hours, given the breadth of your experience. Uh, but I wanted to thank you for the time we have had with you, the insights, uh, and from hearing just rich anecdotes from your a career working on on China. Uh, so thank you very much for your time. And also, I wanted to recommend for listeners to go over to the 21st Century China Center's website. There is a uh, extraordinary wealth of research material there. They run a podcast, they do public events. And of course, you can find the individual scholarship by just the world-class team out there, Victor Schur, Barry Naughton, Molly Roberts, I'm, I'm only just scratching the surface. So um, Susan has has built just an incredible program out there. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to have this conversation at such a perfect time right after the G7 meeting in Japan, too. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Mike. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au. 